0: This is a Soul Fire production. Oh, there's a feeling you get. There's a feeling you get when that coffee hits. It's a great feeling. But it is nothing compared to that feeling you get when that microdose of LSD hits. And you turn into a goddamn superhuman. Weird week. And we got a bonus episode, I guess. The new, uh, an, another episode for the week. One more than per usual. I'm going to I'm start trying to do two a week. Trying to figure it out. When, news, when the news is plentiful, I'm going to do my best to get it out there. And when there's nothing but bullshit to talk about, maybe we'll just talk about bullshit. Who knows? We got a lot, a lot to go over today. We got Biden airstrikes, Cuomo updates. Uh, Glenn, Glenn Greenwald is under some under some fire for his comments on some stats when it comes to trans and gay individuals through the generations. I'm going to play you a, a quite a long video, but one that I thought was great of Bernie going off on Walmart, which just brings joy to my heart. And then we're going to talk about Chris Hayes and his stance on guns and how he's handling that. Um, like a child. So as we go on here, a few things that we're not gonna go into in um in depth, but I thought were worth noting. Mr. Potato Head is now just Potato Head. And this is an interesting situation. I think that there's a lot of other ways they could have handled the Mr. Potato Head gender reveal change, whatever the fuck it is. You know, when I look at this, I think, well, well, you know, Mr. Potato Head didn't have a dong. So, it makes sense that he would be gender neutral, right? So whatever, I get a little virtue signal from Hasbro or whoever makes that kind of stuff. I I get it, I get it. But what if they did this? What if they just leaned into the cultural climate with Mister Potato Head? What if they made little a little PP, a little Vagine, right? So you could just pick whatever you want. Maybe you give him a PP, dress him up like a girl. That fits. That fits the the day's narrative. That'd be fun. Maybe make a maga hat for him. Or an Antifa t shirt. Maybe give them an AR 15 or a Molotov cocktail. All of those things would have been great. They could have, they're sitting on a gold mine here with Mr. Potato Head. They could have just leaned in, gone full on. Could have had Antifa Potato Head. Could have had MAGA Potato Head. Been great. You could have had wars between the potatoes. Call it the potato famine of 2021. Interesting stuff. Wish I could have got a little more creative there, but. Creativity is not popular in 2021, and uh, robot dogs are keeping us safe in New York City. I'm not in New York City, but it's keeping New York City residents safe, and a sample is what what is surely to come, robot dogs policing the streets. Now, if you're a fan of Black Mirror and you know the episode Metalhead, um, where these dogs were tasked with eradicating human beings... Might be a little scary for you, and if you haven't seen that episode of Black Mirror, I highly recommend you go check it out. It's called Metalhead. I think it was in season two. Amazing episode, super trippy, very dark, and all too real these days. I was really looking forward to the to the next season of 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 um, Black Mirror because that show is such a trip, and I just have a I have a thing for just dark dark TV shows and dark movies. Um, but it seems like they, they put the hold on it, I think, because it just got too real, but probably, they probably had the whole season kind of wrapped around, uh, some kind of pandemic and they were like, "Oof, two on the nose, <laughs> two on the nose. Listen, uh, if you love this show, there's a couple ways that you can support it. Number one way is by going to the link in my show notes, uh, patreon.com politically homeless and joining the politically homeless community. And you can also do a few other things. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, and you can share this show on your social media. It means a lot to me. We're gaining some traction. It feels good, but there's lots of lots more traction to be gained, and I reach out to you guys to do this because there's certain things like my YouTube channel, for example, is being throttled back, which is really frustrating to me, um, but it is what it is. Like This is the game that we're playing. We're fighting the algorithm. Uh, views that come from uh, the independent section of, of politics do not get preferential treatment. It'd be a lot better if I went on, went full MAGA or full lefty, but that's, that's the best way to grow an audience. That's, that's the best way. Grifting is rewarded in our culture today. So anything you can do to help grow this show, if you find value in it is very appreciated. And like I said, sharing it on social media, leaving a review on Apple podcasts, and again, Joining that politically homeless Patreon community is a great way to make this thing financially viable and participate in conversations. You know, we do that. We do one show every week that is uh, fully crowdsourced from the Patreon community. So we're just diving into topics. And regardless of what the topic is, I do my best to do my research and present you with my takes, my perspectives. And that's really at the end of the day, what this show aims to do is call out hypocrisy and share perspectives. And I know a lot of you out there are right wingers. And I appreciate that. I I think that there's something to be said for perspectives coming from the other side in a way that are easy to understand and can create some common ground or at least create some resonance Uh, When it comes to ideas, you know, I find some value in some of the right wing people that I don't agree with on all their policies, but I appreciate the way that they articulate them. And I think there's a ton of value in that. So I appreciate all of you, regardless of where you're at on the political spectrum, man, you could be a communist, a socialist, an anarchist, a libertarian, a a laissez faire capitalist. And I can disagree with all of you on topics and it's super fun. And at the end of the day, I just love to argue. So (laughs) here I am but I appreciate that support and everybody that supported me so far, you guys have just made this thing so fun. So let's move on from Mr. Potato head with Molotov cocktails and police dogs. Let's get into the real, the real stuff, the real news. We've got a lot to talk about. And with that being said, it's time for the state of things. those of you that don't know, I do all the sound mixing on this podcast live. It's just me in here, doing it live. Right now, I'm fading this music out to make it pleasing for your ears as we transition into the state of things. You should be impressed. I'm impressed with myself. What I'm not impressed with is the military-industrial complex. We've got this article here from The Guardian, who's done some really good reporting. This is David Sirota, who's actually a journalist, which there are a few of those these days, but he's a good one. Um, Airstrikes in Syria killed 22 in Joe Biden's first military act as president. Strikes against Iran-backed fighters were retaliated retaliation for attacks on U.S.-led forces in Iraq, says the Pentagon. Because the Pentagon is a beacon of truth. Uh, Joe Biden has carried out his first military action as president with airstrikes targeting Iranian-backed fighters in Syria. And what the Pentagon said was retaliation for a rocket attack in Iraq earlier this month that killed one civilian contractor and wounded a U.S. service member and other coalition troops. The overnight strikes killed 22 people after hitting three trucks loaded with munitions near the border town of Abu Kamal. a war monitor said on Friday. Border posts used by Iranian military militia groups were also destroyed, the UK based Syri- uh, Syrian Observation for Human Rights said. Okay. It said all of the dead were from Iraq state sponsored Hashid al-Shabi. I cannot read these words, I'm sorry. In an umbrella force that includes many small militia militias with ties to Iran. The Pentagon's Chief Spokesperson John Kirby said the location of the strikes was used by Ktib Hezbollah and I uh, dude, guys, Jesus Christ with these names, uh, two Iraqi pro-Iran groups operating under the Hashid umbrella. This predominant military response was conducted together with diplomat- diplomatic measures including consultation with coalition partners, Kirby said. The operation sent an unambiguous message. President Biden will not... Well, excuse me, President Biden will act to protect America and the coalition personnel. At the same time, we have acted in a deliberate manner that aims to de-escalate the overall situation in Syria and Iraq. If the aim was de-escalation, we wouldn't have been in this fucking war for 20 goddamn years. I, I can't. And I just tweeted this earlier today and put it on Instagram. If your opinion of what happens in the Middle East changes based on who's in the goddamn White House, if it fucking matters then you can go fuck yourself. I can't fucking deal with this shit. It's the same fucking song and dance. It's been over 20 years. We need to be done with this shit now. This is like George Bush senior level shit. We are still doing the same goddamn thing. And <laughs> the, we just keep making more radicals, right? We, we, we get so frustrated with extremism and then we just create more extremists so that we can then fight extremism. I, I can't deal with this. And, and I, people will say, and I've heard this a bunch of times, that Trump was the most anti-war candidate we have. He didn't start any new wars, yada, yada, yada. He didn't need to start new wars. He had enough going as it was. He just maintained the wars that we had going on. And with the little show of show of virtue by pulling out some, some troops here and there, that was never going to stay the same because the military-industrial complex, whether you believe it or not, had their hands so far up Trump's ass that they were pulling the fucking strings. Okay, he increased drone strikes by something like 400%. There is no lesser evil in this situation. The military-industrial complex runs the show here. And when you listen to people like the Pentagon and the CIA like as if they have our best interests at heart, give me a fucking break. Give me a fucking break. So many innocent people have died. And we don't care. We don't I care. I care. I care deeply. I care deeply and there are a ton of extremists. But at the same time, we funded those motherfuckers whenever we were so scared of Saddam Hussein for the agenda of another asshole president. Like this is this is the product of our actions. And I don't want to hear about like uh, the difference in religious extremism. All religions are extreme at some point. And right now that's the muslims in fucking in the middle east. I get it. It's dangerous. It's scary. It's fucked up. But we're not helping. We're making it worse. And this shit drives me fucking crazy. I cannot I don't have a whole lot to say about this aside from the fact that it just drives me fucking nuts. And you know, I don't pretend to know what what's going on. I'm not in intelligence briefings. But what gets me more than anything is people are saying, oh, Biden's military action is so much better because he doesn't mean tweet about it. Really? Really? Innocent people die. Now, maybe no no innocent people died in this attack, right? But drone strikes, I think, kill, what, 70 80% innocent people? And that's by kids playing video games in Nevada with no connection to what they're actually doing? Like, this is a part of a grander scheme. Maybe this one military action was warranted and beneficial, and it does actually de-escalate. I don't know. I don't know. Like I said, I'm not in intelligence briefings. But if your view of this, this is more of me just being frustrated with people's view of the way this is going on. If your view of military action changes based on who's who's in the White House, you have zero credibility. Zero credibility. I mean, what the fuck? And the the uh, the level, of, the amount of people that aren't disgusted with a 20-year war also is astonishing to me. The amount of li- liberals, the amount of liberals who are, aren't disgusted with this. I mean, at least with Dick Cheney, you knew you were getting a corrupt fucking warmonger, right? And George W. Bush got off on war, and I don't really think he cared all that much about what he was even doing. He was in way over his head. And Dick Cheney was clearly the puppet master. He's a fucking war criminal. And we let the influence of war criminals still influence our policy. What are we? What is this? Like, it, maybe we shouldn't be outraged about this thing, this one thing. I don't know. It could have, like I said, could have been warranted, could have had their desired results. But it's the broader picture that's frustrating. And Joe Biden by barely being alive is a great puppet for the military industrial complex. I don't, I don't really see Joe Biden standing up for himself or speaking out against this. One of the reasons I love Bernie Sanders he's just an anti-war candidate and you can agree with that or not. I don't care. And that's a lot of people like Trump for the same reason. And I respect that. (sighs) But these these politicians who who I believe sometimes think they're doing the right thing that have been in this game for so long, who voted for the war in Iraq in the first place, we can't expect them to change their tune. With some things, yes, but not something as as deeply ingrained as the impact that the military-industrial complex has on our policy decisions. We even saw it in the fucking stimulus packages, Raytheon. And the other cats all got paid, no matter if they were working or not. They still got paid from the federal government because we've got to have this. I mean, and even Trump's rhetoric around rebuilding the military and increasing military funding. It's like, man, divert that stuff somewhere else. We've got to reevaluate what we're doing with this money. And it's those same people who cry about high taxes. When the Pentagon budget is $900 billion a year. Like that, that level of hypocrisy I can't stand for and I can't live without calling it out. You want, to, you want lower taxes? Decrease military spending. That doesn't mean to decrease the size of our military or decrease what happens when we when people home. Because the thing is, we're paying all this money for the military, but the people that are over there with PTSD don't get anything but Oxycontin when they get home. And that ends up with them putting a fucking bullet in their head. Far too often. But we've got to have a strong military we got to have a strong military because we got to scare the world into submission. How about we divert funds from from not developing necessarily new military technology, but taking care of the people who are fucked up from having to do your bidding over there? That's a novel concept. How about we take responsibility for our actions as a nation and take take care of our veterans? That's something we can get behind. How about we divert some of that fucking Pentagon spending budget to the fucking veterans? Is, and i think that would go that'd be bipartisan as fuck. It's a very popular position. You have our veterans paying the price for our fucked up healthcare system. The people that go fight and die and kill. We talk about fighting and dying a lot. We don't talk about the fact that these people kill people. They end lives as well. And that's not an easy thing to do for most people. Unless you're a psychopath or a sociopath. That creates a toll as well. That disconnects people from their families. There are consequences so far downstream of the initial action that we don't consider enough. And the resources to handle those consequences are wildly inadequate. This is such a broken and fucked system and just incredibly poor optics. But I swear to God, these fucking Republicans, I don't even say Republicans, these, 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 yeah, these Republicans, it's, it's neoconservatives that are crying that this is tyranny here or whatever the fuck they're doing. But if it was the orange man, it'd be fine. It'd be totally justified. Maybe fully defending him and completely vice versa for liberals. So if you know those people, call them out. If they're your friends, if you see them on social media, if it's a representative, especially call them out because I don't give a fuck what you have to say if it depends on the person in office. I'll tell you right now, if Trump would have done this, I'd be just as pissed. And Biden, I don't have high hopes for Biden. They didn't have high hopes for Trump either, obviously. But the, look, use this opportunity for yourself to find hypocrisy in plain sight because it will be ample. And whenever you see someone speaking up about this, ask yourself, would they say the same thing if their party was running shit? And if they wouldn't, tell them to fuck off. Because that's exactly what they need to do. Andrew Meatball Cuomo is in hot water and it's not because he was sexually assaulting one of his aides and forcibly kissed her. It's because he likes to kill old people. And we've talked about this on the show but I wanted to give a um, a little update. Now this is, oh this is actually from David Sirota too. We got David Sirota all over the show today. What a great journalist. <sighs> Cuomo gate a Nixon, a Nixonian scandal is engulfing New York amid demands for Cuomo to resign. The governor and his aides are frantically trying to cover up the facts of what happened. Now you won't see a lot about this on mainstream media. You won't because they were praising him over the last year for his responsibility and his rhetoric. And he wrote a book and he got an Emmy beautiful stuff. That six figure book deal is ripe. Love that. Gotta love, gotta love that look. Now The biggest political scandal in America right now is playing out in New York, where Governor Andrew Cuomo was in a lot of trouble, and rightly so. The Democratic governor did not merely widely mismanage his state's response to the COVID emergency while netting himself a lucrative book deal and an Emmy. He did something worse. In the middle of the public health emergency, he used his office to help one of his largest political donors shield itself from legal consequences as 15,000 nursing home residents died from COVID-19. And then he and his donors excuse me, and then he and his administration underreported the death toll helping the same donor. The Daily Poster and The Guardian have been covering the story for months before it exploded this week, and they have been. I've been keeping tabs on this. Now, they do a great job of just listing some facts here, and I want to break down these facts for us, all right? So let's get them up on the screen. Boom, all right, fact number one. Cuomo's machine raked in two million from industry group. Cuomo's political machine received more than $2 million from the Greater New York Hospital Association, its executives, and its lobbying firms. The healthcare industry group also funneled more than $450,000 to members of the New York legislature in 2020. The money that flowed from the group to these public officials is the middle of, in the middle of the pandemic was a significant increase from prior years. Huh, I wonder why. Fact two, Cuomo helped industry group shield nursing home execs. Amid New York's exploding COVID-19 death toll in April 2020, Cuomo's budget included a provision shielding hospitals and nursing homes from executives, or excuse me, shielded hospital and nursing home executives from legal consequences if their corporate decisions killed people during the pandemic. Huh, interesting. It's kind of like how the pharmaceutical companies are shielded from liability for their vaccines. Weird. The Greater New York uh the Greater New York Hospital Association said it drafted the prezi- provision which did not merely shield frontline healthcare workers from lawsuits, but also extended much liability protections to top corporate officials who make staffing and safety decisions. Holy fucking shit. Critics argued that shielding hospitals and nursing home executives from the threat of lawsuits remove a deterrent to cost-cutting profit maximization decisions that endangered lives. They were ignored. Wow. This is... Wow. Okay. Moving on. Fact number three. Cuomo's corporate immunity law went national. Oh, my God. Cuomo's corporate immunity provision was quickly copied and pasted into other states' laws and into Senate Republican legislation. In near word-for-word fashion, the liability shield spread from New York to other states and even... As the New York Assemblyman Ron Kim released a report showing that states with liability shields were reporting higher nursing home deaths de- during COVID. Uh, Jesus fucking Christ. I can't even like take, keep a straight face reading how fucked up this is. To date, 27 states now shield nursing homes from lawsuits. Over half the country now. Beautiful. This is good stuff. The most vulnerable in our communities. What a fucking piece of shit. Cuomo's immunity law endangered lives according to Attorney General. This is fact number four. While nursing home executives were enjoying their liability shield, Cuomo's office was vastly underreporting the number of COVID-19 nursing home deaths according to a report by the New York Attorney General, Lalita James, who is considered a Cuomo ally. <laughs> that report found that Cuomo administration data had undercounted nursing home deaths by 50%. James' report also showed that Cuomo's corporate immunity law could result in higher rates of nursing home casualties. The immunity this is a quote from her, the immunity law could be wrongly used to protect any individual or entity entity from liability, even if those decisions were not made in good faith or motivated by financial incentives. Of course, um, provide, excuse me, excuse me, okay. The report added that provisions provide financial institute incentives for nonprofit nursing home operators to put residents at risk of harm by refraining from investing public funds to abstain sufficient staffing to meet residents' care needs. To purchase sufficient PPE for staff and to provide effective training to staff to comply with infection control protocols during the pandemic and other public health emergencies. Can you start to see the layer of fucked upness that's happening right here? Just, the, the, just we're, down, we're in like a six layer cake of bullshit right now. Fact number five. Cuomo's top aide admitted to withholding info. Cuomo's top aide, Melissa DeRosa, admitted that Cuomo's administration not only withheld information about nursing, nursing home deaths, but did so in order to preemptively avoid political and legal consequences. That is called corruption. That is a cover-up. Got another quote here. We were in a position where we weren't sure if what we were going to give to the Department of Justice or what we what we give to state legislators And what we were saying was going to be used against us, DeRosa told New York legislators last week. DeRosa's father, brother, and sister are employed at one of the lobbying firms that represents the uh, Greater New York um, Hospital Association, the healthcare industry group that funneled millions to Cuomo's political machine, and (laughs) spearheaded the corporate immunity law. Jesus Christ. Are we for real with this? Cuomo is a gangster and a crony ass motherfucker. The fact that everybody was praising this asshole all year long is beyond embarrassing and beyond pathetic. He got so little scrutiny while he was able to nail a six-figure book deal and build a papier-mâché representation of the curve that he was single-handedly flattening while 15,000 old people died in nursing homes because, and, and now those, those, they're still shielded from liability, right? No one can sue, no one's family can sue these, these healthcare, or the healthcare, these organizations that were wildly irresponsible. In the same way that if the vaccine comes back to bite you in the ass, those producers have a liability shield thanks to the government not actually giving a fuck. Liability shields when it comes to healthcare, are wildly irresponsible as well. This whole thing is clear corruption and the problem with, part of, with politics. Money in politics creates these situations. The person who outed him has family members who work for the lobbying group. How do you think she got that job? Or how do you think they got that job? Who knows which way it went. But this is fucked, man. Like, this is, a, this is not good. And Cuomo's about to eat it. But he's a gangster-ass motherfucker. That's how he is. He called this guy Ron Kim and threatened to ruin his career. Said he could destroy him. And those threats are commonplace with Andrew Cuomo. But you don't see this stuff. How much have they talked about this on MSNBC and CNN? Right, because on CNN, what was happening was that he was talking about how big his nose is, where his brother, and oh, like my mom said, you can make the meatballs better, and I make the meatballs better. Shut the fuck up, people are dying. Jesus, man. Corrupt ass motherfuckers. It's it's just sad. But the thing is, it's not just Cuomo, right? I'm by no means defending him, but this is the way that politics works, especially in a place like New York. Follow the money. These people are not acting from the goodness of their hearts. Follow the money. That's where you find the truth. There are not many companies that have the balls to sponsor this podcast, but Elemental Labs does, and I appreciate them for it. They are the creators of the Element Electrolyte. Mix now. this come in a very convenient little tube. I carry them with me everywhere I go in case I need, feel dehydrated because I drink a shitload of coffee and I like to work out and sometimes I fast and I eat carnivore and do different things. And when you're doing any and all of those things, you need electrolytes. You need to stay hydrated. And you need it to taste good because water's great. Water, when you're thirsty, it feels good. But sometimes you gotta go with the extra mile. Sometimes you wanna drink a full-on now gene bottle full of delicious, tasting hydrational goodness. And that is what Element is there for. Now, people in the military use it. It's Silicon Valley CEOs, just to get a little bit of an edge. Maybe they drink it right before they microdose LSD like me. But um, it's great stuff, guys. Really, no bullshit. It is fantastic. And you can get an eight-pack. Just for paying shipping. So it's 5 bucks for shipping. Cover the shipping. Get your 8-pack eight vari- eight variety pack of Element. But here's the thing. You can do that. That's great. If you want to try it out, if you're a little apprehensive, get your $5 pack. Do the thing. All good. But if you do not get that Lemon Habanero, it is so goddamn good. Lemon Habanero and then in the weekends, what is it? It's Friday right now as I'm recording this. I might have a little Lemon Habanero, about 6 ounces of water. Not too much. Maybe a little less than that. And Tequila. Okay, Frank? I do that. I mix a little tequila in there. I have myself a little skinny mark. It takes the edge off at the end of the week. And I don't have to deal with all the sugar and the bullshit. Because really, I could drink tequila on ice, but sometimes I want a little flavor. You know what I'm saying? I want a little, just want to spice it up a little bit. Maybe throw a little jalapeno slice in there. Ooh, girl, you don't even know. Element is so good. So good. And I have a few friends in here that, uh, you know, ask me not you know, friends. The Patreon members are my friends, really. That's that. Those are my best friends. But people that reach out to me, asking me about backcountry hunting and bow hunting and these things. One of the most important things you can do when you're out there hiking, hunting, whatever, is stay hydrated. It is really hard to do. You'll be surprised when you're at altitude. If you're going skiing, if you're getting out in the world, if you're going out on the boat, all these different things that you can do, you need to stay hydrated, and it s- helps a ton a ton. So check it out. Drink element, dot com slash wanders is how you're going to get that $5 variety pack. Make sure to add lemon habanero to your cart because it is the best. It is the best hands down my favorite. Check it out. Elemental labs, drink element.com slash wanders. The link is in the show notes of this show. Click it, get it and stay moist. Let me try and simmer down here a little bit. Whew, those first two got me heated. Just take a few deep breaths with me here. A couple more. Last one, nice and deep. All right, future friend of the show, Glenn Greenwald and I'm just manifesting that because I really respect his work, um, is in some hot water today for being objective. Now, let's give some context on Glenn. Uh, Being gay is a big part of his identity and a big part of his personal development uh, into a journalist. And he talks about that quite a bit on a recent episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends, um, where they had him on. Great episode. Go check that out. But he tweeted a series of tweets, a little thread here, from a really interesting new Gallup poll talking about LGBT um, identification through the generation. So I'm going to read through his, twit th- tw- twit, his, tweet, his tweet thread here, and then we're going to dive into some of the numbers because this is actually really fascinating. So Glenn says, some really fascinating, oh, he thinks it's fascinating too, maybe that's where I got it from. He says, some really fascinating findings in this new Gallup survey on Americans identifying as LGBT. It should lead to lots of deeper investigation to understand what explains some of these astronomical changes. But for now, a few points to note. There has been a huge explosion in the number of Americans identifying as LGBT. Close to one in every five Gen Z, Gen Z so identifies, 17%. That's more than a four-fold increase from Gen X. Of Americans now claiming to be bi, the vast majority of them are in long-term relationships with, with the opposite sex rather than same-sex relationships. So 10 times more people who identify as bi live in hetero-appearing relationships than gay lesbian ones. Finally, as famed lesbian Kitty Perzog notes, there are now among millennials and G- Gen Z more people identifying as trans than lesbians. She has previously argued that masculine girls are now encouraged to identify as trans, causing a decrease in the lesbian population. And he shares Katie's article. Clearly, the massive increase in Americans self-identifying as LGBT, an increase due to overwhelmingly to more bi and trans self-identifiers, is partially a function of increased social acceptance, but that clearly is not the only factor, and I doubt it's the primary one, which I agree with. It's super interesting. So if we go to the actual Gallup poll here, LGBT identif- identification rises to 5.6% in latest US estimate. So, a few things that really jumped out at me here. Um, American self-identified sexual orientation, uh, lesbian 11.7% of the LGBT community, gay 24.5, bisexual 54 54- The majority of people in the LGBT community are bi, which I thought was really interesting, but also not that surprising. Uh, Transgender, 11.3%. So transgender is falling right below um, number of lesbians, which I thought was kind of astonishing, actually. And that's out of the entire LGBT uh, community. So really similar numbers to the number of lesbians in that community and the number of trans people, which, again, pretty surprising to me. Um, Now, if we look at the generations, this is really quite astonishing to me. So the Gen Z, so that's born 1997 to 2002, are 15.9% LGBT and then uh, 5.2% no opinion, which I feel like you should probably have an opinion on that, but okay. (laughs) <laughs> millennials, 9.1% LGBT. And then Gen Gen X, uh, 3.8. Once we get into baby boomers and what they're calling traditionalists, which is, uh, 1946 to 1964. And then before 1946, it was so socially unacceptable that it really, those numbers are kind of like, I don't find them all that valid just because of the level of social unacceptability there. Um, Now, if we move down to the percentage of um, sexual, so American self identification, sexual orientation by generation, and then we break the breakout groups between bisexual, gay, lesbian, transgender, uh, we look at Gen Z. We have 11.5% bisexual, 2.1% gay, 1.4% lesbian, and 1.8% transgender. It really does, it's kind of astonishing to me that that's. And those were people from how, what are they, 2021, so like 19 to 26. That's the fact that there's more transgender people than there are lesbians like really really threw me off. I was like I was astonished by that. Um, in millennials now, we have five point one percent bisexual, two percent gay. 0.8% lesbian, and one2 So even with the millennials, there's more people self-identifying as transgender uh, than lesbian, and then we go to Gen X, so that's 1965 to 1980. Um, 1.8% bisexual, 1.2% gay, 0.7% lesbian and 0.2% transgender. So there has been a transgender explosion here. And I think in a bisexual explosion, which for me, this kind of hits close to home because uh, my partner Kelly has come out as bisexual and it's been it's been really good for our relationship. It actually fits with us very well, but we are in what is seemingly, if you were just to, on surface value, you look at a very a kind of standard heterosexual relationship. So this is something that really jumped out at me. And there's a lot to be considered here, right? So we're not gonna get into like the equality bill that's going through right now and any of that, but just on the surface, if we look at this, um, a lot of these Gen Xers here are, or excuse me, Gen Zers, my bad. A lot of these Gen Zers here, I think one of Glenn's points that he got attacked for was saying that um, and repeating something that that a lesbian adv- uh, activist had said is that a lot of more masculine, um, lesbians are at a younger age being pushed into what is now a more socially acceptable group uh, of being trans. And that makes sense. Like you can't say that doesn't have any logical standing. Now are all of those people just lesbians that, that are identifying as trans? Of course not. That would be a little bit naive to say. Um, but to think that that's not a substantial portion would also be naive. So we have to look at this from all angles. And this is really quite interesting because I think that the bisexuality thing is something that's become, that's also a a huge explosion in the numbers. Um, I think that's actually really amazing. I love that because your sexuality is more fluid. And this is, there's a lot of evolutionary biology and psychology that studies this that I've, I've dove into the past over the past 10 years. And for me, seeing that makes me very hopeful and people being able to identify and express themselves in a way that feels uh, genuine to them, I think is, is a, is, a pr- should be a priority for all of us to understand and accept and i think the people being able to be treated with very few exceptions as the identi- as the gender that they identify as is also very important right now when we get into like sports and things like that um, and things where uh, i guess like physical dominance matters we have to have some nuance around that conversation but we have to also be predica- have to have a foundation of that conversation that is we want the best for the most people and we want people to be treated in a way that is appropriate and fair and just for them. Um, but these numbers, I think I thought it was just really interesting to share how, how much they've changed over the past 20, 30 years. And I think that there are a lot of conversations that have to be had around the age that kids that identify as trans are able to consent to having, um, serious hormones or physical alter, um, physical alterations to their body. These are things we these are the kind of conversations we need to have and I, and I don't think that the the explosion in numbers is is a, is something that should discourage us from that conversation. I think it may, means that conversation is more and more valid every day. And the more people that are impacted by this, the more we need to understand and explore what are the best paths forward as a society. What's going to be the most equitable going forward? How are we going to be able to do this in a way that is um, responsible and respectful to people's wants and needs? But the funny thing is about this is that Glenn is now being called a transphobe and a biphobe um, for pointing these things out as a married gay man um, who has really sacrificed himself for human rights over and over again and, and has the utmost integrity as far as a journalist I've ever seen. So, a lot to think about here, but one thing he pointed out that I thought was really interesting is that if you don't agree with 100% of what the furthest corner of um, the trans rights community has to say, right, the most extreme version, then now you're an enemy. Whereas, you know, when Glenn was coming out, and this is, um, I think he's a Gen, Gen Xer, um when he was coming out, it was a much different time. And in order to help people understand where they were coming from, people coming out in droves was a really important part of that. There was a lot of conversations happening of like, Hey, I'm your friend. I'm your brother. I'm your sister. I'm your mom. I'm your dad. I'm your kid. I'm your neighbor. Like normalizing, um, gay men and gay women was such a big part of that movement. And To do that, you kind of had to jump over some hurdles that I will admit are not fair, uh, that most people shouldn't have to jump over in order to identify or express their sexuality in a way that they feel is genuine to them. And at the same time, that's how you create allies. You know, I consider myself an ally to, to the entire LGBT community, and... I do my best and I've represented myself in that way. And I do get called transphobic because of a few opinions that I have and a few conversations that I want to have, which I find, um, I don't let it get to me, obviously, but it is odd. And I'm like, well, what didn't you, what didn't you encourage these kind of conversations? If you have valid points, encourage the conversation. Encourage the conversation to a point where it's undeniable that what you're saying is just and right and coming from uh, a good faith uh, place. So, Really interesting numbers here, something to dive in, and I've just seen, in my own personal world, I've seen so many women that are like, oh my God, I like women sometimes, and there's such a broad spectrum there. You can be like 80% straight, 20% gay. Everybody's, and most people are a little bit gay. Like everybody's a little gay. I kind of made jokes about being 17% gay. You know, I can tell when a man's attractive, don't want to suck any dicks, doesn't do it for me, but I know what's up, you know? I got a friend who's like 30% gay. I'm pretty sure he's fucked dudes. I don't know. doesn't change anything. He's also a UFC fighter, so he could probably beat my ass. <laughs> probably. He would beat my ass. But um, it's an interesting situation to be in here, to see this, this shift. And I think, on the whole, when the chaos settles, this is actually going to be a really great thing for our society. And I, I'm really hopeful for it, but we've got to get into the business of having difficult conversations on a regular basis and not chastising people who don't agree with you for holding up to their beliefs. I will also say that when Christians come out and say that this is an attack on their religion, it drives me absolutely insane. And we'll leave it there. Let's move on. Well, I'll never not be a Bernie fanboy. And I don't, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not gonna apologize for it. You may hate the guy out there. I know many of you do, don't care. We're gonna listen to what he has to say about our good friends over at
1: Walmart. We, uh, call this meeting to order and let me thank uh, ranking Member um, Lindsey Graham and the other members of the committee for being with us in person or on video. Uh, I would also like to thank the um, many witnesses uh, who will be testifying today, most of whom who will be joining us remotely uh, because of this um, pandemic. Um, I want to call this hearing uh, to order in order to discuss a very simple, uh, yet I believe profound question. And that question is this, why should the taxpayers of our country, many of whom are struggling economically as a result of the pandemic, uh, be subsidizing the starvation wages being paid at some of the largest and most profitable Corporations in America.
0: Good question, Bernie.
1: That's the simple question. Why should working people be subsidizing some of the wealthiest families and largest corporations in America because of the starvation wages they pay their workers? And let me be very clear. The largest welfare recipient in America happens to be the wealthiest family. In Interesting. America,
0: Interesting. The Walton
1: stuff. family a family that owns the largest corporation in America, Walmart. This is a family that is worth over $200 billion. It is a family that has become $50 billion wealthier since March of 2020 during the worst public health crisis in over 100 years. This corporation that they own, Walmart, made over $15 billion in profit last year alone. And yet, despite this massive family wealth, despite these very high corporate profits, Walmart pays wages so low that tens of thousands of their employees are forced to rely on public assistance in order to survive. They are forced to rely on food stamps to feed their children Paid for by the US taxpayer. They are forced to go into public housing to put a roof over their heads, paid for by US taxpayers. And they are forced to go on Medicaid to get the health care they need, all of which is paid by US taxpayers. While Costco, Amazon, Target, Best Buy, and other major corporations have all raised their minimum wage in recent years to at least $15 an hour. And in a few minutes, we're going to hear from the CEO of Costco.
0: Shouts to those companies. The
1: minimum wage at Walmart has remained stuck at $11 an hour for the last three years. The result, 760,000 workers at Walmart. Walmart is the largest employer in America. 760,000 employees, about half of their U.S. workforce, are paid less than $15 an hour. Now, I don't know. Maybe if you are a billionaire family, you may not understand this, but the simple truth is that no one in America can live with dignity, can raise a family on 11 or $12 an hour. And I must say on a personal level that I have talked to too many employees in this country who with tears in their eyes, tell me about the struggles that they are having, trying to feed their kids, pay their rent on the starvation wages that they receive. Today we're going to ask how Walmart can afford to pay its CEO, who declined my invitation to be with us today, over $22 million in compensation last year, $22 million in compensation, but somehow they cannot afford to pay their workers a living wage. We're going to ask how Walmart can afford to spend $8.3 billion on stock buybacks in 2017, but cannot afford to pay its workers at least 15 bucks an hour. Jesus. And if Walmart thinks that they're going to avoid answering that question because they didn't show up today, they are deeply mistaken. The American people are sick and tired of subsidizing the wealthiest family in America. Well, let us be clear. Walmart is not alone. Last year, Dollar General made over $10 billion in profits, had enough money to pay its CEO $12 million in compensation, while the average Dollar General cashier is forced to survive on just $8.38 an hour. In 2019, McDonald's made over $6 billion in profits and paid its CEO over $18 million in compensation while the average worker at McDonald's makes as little as $9 an hour. Unfortunately, the CEO of McDonald's also declined to testify before us today. Further, a November 2020 Government Accountability Office report that I requested found that taxpayers are not only subsidizing the poverty wages at Walmart, McDonald's, and Dollar General— but Dollar Tree, Wendy's, Burger King, Uber, Subway, Dunkin' Donuts, Home Depot, Lowe's, CBS, and Walgreens. We will hear from the author of that GAO report later this morning. In America today, and one of the great scandals of our economy, is that nearly half of all workers make less than $15 an hour, and they are forced to rely on public assistance programs costing taxpayers $107 billion each year. And today we're going to be discussing about what it means to work for a large corporation that makes billions of dollars in profit, but yet as a worker, you're not sure when you wake up in the morning if you're going to have enough food to feed your kids. During this hearing, we're going to hear from employees who work for McDonald's and Walmart. We're going to hear about half of American workers living paycheck to paycheck. We're going to hear about the fact that the federal minimum wage of $7.25 an hour has not been raised by Congress since 2007. Got that? Minimum wage not been raised by Congress since 2007, 14 years ago. And let us be clear, no ifs, buts, and maybes. $7.25 an hour is a starvation wage. That's what it is. We must raise the minimum wage to a living wage, at least $15 an hour. And when we do that, not only will we be lifting millions of Americans out of poverty, we will be providing a raise to 32 million American workers. And not only is raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour the right thing to do, it is also what the overwhelming majority of Americans want us to do. Poll after poll, over 60% of the American people have told us, they support increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Since 1998, every time a state has had an initiative on the ballot to raise the minimum wage, it has won. That's true. No matter whether that state was red, blue, or purple. Today, eight states and over 40 cities have adopted laws to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. This is not a radical idea. Now, I do understand... That concern has been raised about the Raise the Wage Act, which I have sponsored, which gradually raises the minimum wage to $9.50 this year, $11 in 2022, $12.50 in 2023, $14 in 2024, and $15 an hour in 2025. That's a gradual increase. Some people believe that these increases will harm small businesses. I understand that. Now, I fully understand that there is a major difference between Walmart and a small, struggling business. Many small businesses, all of us understand, are struggling today in Vermont, South Carolina, all across this country, and they need our help. To date, Congress has already provided $800 billion in financial assistance to small businesses, and an additional $50 billion is included in the reconciliation bill working its way through the Senate. I am also sympathetic to providing small businesses with a tax relief that they need to offset some of the increased labor costs associated with the minimum wage increase, just as Congress has done virtually every time that it has increased the minimum wage. But let me say this, study after study has shown that a gradual increase in the minimum wage does not lead to increased unemployment. In fact, a review of 138 minimum wage increases at the federal, state, and local level since 1984, published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics, found no evidence that these laws reduce employment. Zero. My own state of Vermont, for example, very rural state, largely dependent on small business, has the third lowest unemployment rate in the country at 3.1%, while it also has one of the highest minimum wages in the country at $11.75 an hour.
0: So... I wouldn't, I wanted to play that whole thing that I think that that's a really important thing to consider when we're looking at the $15 minimum wage and I'm not 100% convinced on the $15 minimum wage, but I want to point out why that's a part of the conversation is because these companies like Walmart, for example, have been deemed so irresponsible with the way that they pay their employees and the way they compensate their employees and that the government is having to subsidize them. If you are somebody who believes that government spending is out of control, and I am very much one of those people, then you have to look at this as well as things like the Pentagon budget, right? What do you say? A hundred and some odd billion dollars a year is paid just to Walmart employees on government-assisted programs. That's a problem. That's a problem. And that is why we're having this conversation about a $15 minimum wage, because these massive companies do not pay their employees enough while their CEOs are getting compensated $22 million a year. Like this trickle down economics, Reagan bullshit did not work. Okay. It's, that's, that's not how this goes. They're beholden to their shareholders and their, and their executives. And after that, it's just kind of like whatever the, the least we can pay people to get the thing done and libertarians will make a case for no minimum wage and how that would be better. I think it's that's moronic and you're also just not going to put this cat back in the bag here, okay? So this is a really interesting thing and I love the idea. And this is where I this is where I think the manipulation of taxes is really important and what could be could be really great for us going forward is creating a very low small business taxes. Right? With a lot of exemptions as far as what you pay your employees and having most tax cuts, exemptions, whatever you want to call it um, be related to the way that you compensate your employment. That's what I think is a, is a great step forward because there do need to be tax breaks. If companies are doing things that benefit us as a whole, but these tax loopholes that we have now by no means do that. And there are some that are probably beneficial. I get that. And if you lose money as a business, you can write that off towards your future taxes. I had to do that once when I owned a business. It it was unpleasant, but it did help out substantially. Um, And I think that's great. I think that that encourages small business ownership because that is a high-risk endeavor. But if we provide tax assistance or tax cuts for small businesses that are providing their employees with a higher wage, That's a better place to be. That's a better way to use the tax code for the benefit of the people, not the benefit of the 1%, if you want to call them that, right? Which is really like the 0.2% at the end of the day. But when you have a company like the Waltons or a family like the Waltons who are so disconnected from their employee base and is the largest employer in the country and they're worth $50 more than they were a year ago thanks to COVID – and no Walmarts, Walmarts weren't shut down. Targets weren't shut down. It's the mom and pop shops that were shut down and we need to heavily invest into, I mean, I mean, I would love to see like 0% taxes um, on small businesses of under hundred employees for at least a year or two just to see how that goes and put that money and have them put that money back into, and there's going to take some government regulation and government oversight, but then for them to put that money back into their employment, that's where I see this thing going, and that's where I think would be a better situation. I wish there was a thing is, small businesses can't lobby the government. And if they could, we'd see more of this. But it's military contractors and large corporations that are able to lobby the government for what they want in the tax code, not what actually benefits the people, what benefits them. And that's one of the reasons, I'm telling you, this is one of the reasons I love Bernie Sanders. It is because when you think about, you may think he's a radical leftist and all, and a communist and all these things. But when you run his ideas through the filter of what's actually possible, I believe that puts us on a on the side of a better a better country for everybody involved. Um, and whether that means just voraciously attacking uh, healthcare companies and pharmaceutical companies that price gouge people, you can't tell me that's not a popular idea. You can't tell me that it's worth paying 10 or 20 times the same price for insulin as people do in uh, Canada and holding the government to accountable for the fact that Coca-Cola and McDonald's created our fucking healthcare care uh, or um, our healthy nutrition guidelines. That's something the government needs to be held accountable for there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of nuance to this, but wanted to play this for you guys. Cause I know this is going to be a conversation that's going on over the next year or so. And I think it's important for us to stay informed on all sides and try to create an understanding of where all sides are coming from. That's kind of what I do with libertarians, even though I think like not raising the minimum wage to something that's at least like 11 or $12 is a problem. But I think there are some areas in the country, like where I grew up where you can do well on 11, $12 an hour, um, but at the same time, that's not most places nowadays. Um, and we're going to see, a, a, we're probably going to see some substantial inflation thanks to the, the stimulus and the way that we've been printing money. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. But I thought this was worth playing. And now we're going to get into something really fun. All right, just heads up for all of you podcast listeners out there you're going to want to see the video for this one. So go subscribe on YouTube now. Chris Hayes, born and raised in New York, went to Brown University, and is now a primetime anchor on MSNBC, has some thoughts about people and their guns. So let's go ahead and just get into this with him real quick here. Great little segment here, just totally unbiased and pragmatic and grounded. Let's get into it.
2: It's been unclear for some time what exactly it is that Donald Trump Jr. does, but like his father, he does love... A lot of cocaine to make content this week. He posted a video of himself ranting about teachers unions while pointedly standing in a front of a wall of guns. The whole thing had a here are my thoughts from my bunker vibe. But as weird as this image is, it's kind of becoming a trend on the right. Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert, owner of Shooter's Grill in Rifle, Colorado, where guns are welcome and seemingly encouraged on the premises, has built her political identity around guns. Boebert vowed to carry a Glock around D.C. and on Capitol Hill. She released a video to make sure that we all knew. It. Last Thursday, she zoomed into a virtual congressional hearing with just a mess of guns piled on the bookshelf behind her. AR-15 style rifles, a handgun just laying across a bunch of books. Boebert, who is raising four young boys, later tweeted that the guns are not in storage, but are, quote, ready for use. Apparently, she just leaves them out because she fears she may need to fire multiple rounds of ammo into someone who comes into her den. You know, lots of people immediately noted that the use of guns in that way as props and the implicit threat that comes with them has a, you know, long, not necessarily uh, great history among various movements around the globe. Osama bin Laden, for one, liked to pose in front of a bookshelf with a gun prominently displayed. (laughs) The Irish Republican Army would display guns in its propaganda. Okay, the subtle implication that
0: displaying guns makes you uh, Osama bin Laden is a little bit much, Chris
2: Hayes, just a little bit much. Posters and its murals, Cuban revolutionaries, they posed with guns all the time, too. And no single side of the spectrum has a monopoly on this aesthetic. I mean, you can see it, you know, all over the world. It is unquestionably the aesthetic of armed struggle of revolution or insurrection. Is it? Revolution? Really? Insurrection? What? A movement or faction that puts images of guns, the celebration of guns, front and center in its political aesthetic, is a movement that's engaging in something other than what we might call the normal rhetoric of elected democratic politics. You can't escape the meaning of it. It 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 communicates... That they are committed to, or at the very least, open the possibility of violent overthrow of the government or the existing order. And now in the Republican Party, it, it seems like it's becoming that's pretty thin, Chris Hayes. That's pretty thin, buddy. And common and unremarkable. You know, you'll remember Marjorie Taylor Greene posed with this gun in her campaign ads next to Democratic members of Congress. She wears a mask reading "Molon Labe," which is ancient Greek for "Come and take them" in the halls of Congress, and. That's been used for a bunch of reasons, but in her case, the implied message seems to be if you try to take away our guns, we'll start shooting. Over decades, the right has built up this entire ideology around the Second Amendment, rooted in, frankly, the ridiculous idea that the U.S. government itself denied itself a monopoly on legitimate use of force because the founders had gone through revolution themselves. And the history just doesn't bear that out. It's not true. Not now and not during, for instance, the Whiskey Rebellion, way back in 1794 when President George Washington got into his old uniform and got on a horse and sent in troops to violently suppress a violent tax protest. Many Republicans are now signaling they retain the right to use violence to overthrow the government at any time, that that's actually the core of part of their political principles. That's not, that's not what's, what's happening. In the Second Amendment, and they are willing to brandish that claim as a threat in pursuit of their political aims. And it's not some academic thing, right? I mean, right now, the threat of violence and menace hangs over our collective political life. From the armed protests in the Michigan State House last spring, which included men who the FBI says plotted to kidnap and kill the Democratic governor, to the violent insurrectionists on January 6th, some of whom vowed to kill any lawmakers who wouldn't do their bidding. It's become increasingly standard for the most hardcore devotees of Trump and his faction to at the very least wink at the notion that they're ready to hurt anyone who gets in their way. Sometimes the threat is all too real. Here's one example. Last year, an anti-feminist attorney who described himself as a Trump volunteer murdered the son of a federal judge, Esther Salas, nearly killed her husband using a gun. Salas was the target The killer has also been tracking Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor.
0: You know, we were screaming, Daniel, hold on and
1: don't leave us. And and then I, I just, as I think about that day, I just, I realized I was watching my only child fade away.
0: They end that off with a tearjerker there. And that is really sad. I'm very sorry for that family. Now let's have a discussion now. The display of guns in that video, by me, is idiotic, and I accept that. Displaying guns in the background of your political videos is fucking stupid and not helpful. I am clearly a Second Amendment advocate. That does not mean I support the NRA. That does not mean I like Lauren Boebert. That does not mean that I like Marjorie Taylor fucking Green. Okay, I think they're doing more damage than good when it comes to responsible gun ownership because they're walking around with a fucking AR-15 in their fucking campaign ads. Do you understand how stupid that is? Making this thing front and center of your political purpose means you don't have a political purpose that is substantial and matters. And Chris Hayes, some kid who grew up in New York, went to Brown University, who's never been around gun culture, is clearly going to have a different perspective than someone like me who grew up in rural Texas and went to Texas State. This is a gun and is not worth being worshipped. We need pragmatic, responsible reform. But what they don't want you to know is that they don't want this debate to end in the same way that they manipulate abortion. They want this debate to continue to happen. They want to keep dividing us against each other over things that we find deeply important. Props behind you to virtue signal to the right. These these right-wingers love to talk about virtue signaling when all they do with their fucking weapons is virtue signal to the right. I have a display case I could put behind me. And have all my guns right behind me in all my videos to virtue signal how how important I think these things are. And I do think it's important that the government is a little bit nervous about the number of guns that we have in this country. I think that holds them to account. I really do. And I think the Second Amendment is very important. I think it's also really important to understand that most of the guns that go to the cartels in Mexico that they use to protect their drug trade come from the United States of America. Because we have a shit ton of them. A massive surplus. And gun manufacturers make that money. This is a very nuanced and complicated situation. I have HR 127 right here. Right here next to me. I've read through it several times. It's trash. It's trash legislation. Because these people who write this legislation don't understand guns. At all. Okay? They don't understand them at all. But on the right... You have people who think the only solution is more guns, which is equally as idiotic because everybody wants to dig their heels in and blame the other side for being radical without having an actual fucking conversation on what matters. The second amendment is important. Rational gun legislation is equally as important. Background checks are helpful. But when we look at the stats and say, well, AR-15s are used in less than 1% of gun violence, that's something that should be noted. That this thing right here is more dangerous than anything I have behind me or anything I have in my house. 80% of gun violence is done with handguns. But we talk about AR-15s because they're scary, and it goes nowhere. Nowhere. This is wildly wildly irresponsible the way that we're handling this and to worship and praise guns is moronic and to display them behind you as a politician is ridiculous. This makes me so frustrated. I wish I could have fun with this. I wish we could have fun having this discussion and just like have a nuanced conversation around rational gun ownership, responsible gun ownership, but we can't because these people want us to be divided and they want to play on your emotions instead of using logic and reason on both sides. Because that five-minute segment from the Chris Hayes show is very convincing to a large part of the population. And Marjorie Taylor Greene waving our AR-15 around in her campaign ads is also very convincing to a large part of the population that will never see eye to eye. And if we don't look at that and understand that, we're never going to come to any kind of conclusion or any kind of pragmatic moving fo- move forward. It's so frustrating to watch this as somebody who considers themselves grounded and independent and rational, to watch everyone be manipulated by stupid fucking things. We are all better off if the government's a little bit scared of us. It just is what it is. The founding fathers knew that, that's important. But when you talk about things that deny stats and play on people's emotions to make progress, that progress is not grounded. It's superficial. And it doesn't solve the problems. If we can't accurately and honestly assess the problems that we have with firearms in this country, then we can't make any kind of moves that are substantial and substantive. So when we look at this and we look at these people virtue signaling their asses off all the time as a way to gain favor within other gun nuts and making themselves look like gun nuts, what are we doing? Nothing. We're dividing ourselves more and more. And I pulled the guns out and put them in this video just to elicit a response. I wanted to elicit an emotional response from the people watching this think about that response. What was it? Were you cheering? Were you mad? Were you frustrated? Were you annoyed? Did you want to unfollow me? Did you unfollow me? There are all important questions to ask and then think why, why? Because I like to recreationally shoot because I keep a pistol on me when I'm out in the, out in the woods for five or 10 days because mountain lions are a real problem and bears can be a little bit dangerous. Not to mention everybody you run up on out there has a gun and you're carrying around thousands of dollars worth of stuff on your backpack? (laughs) Why? Look into that for yourself. Look into it and ask yourself how you're being manipulated because you are being manipulated with this conversation. They want this debate. They don't want progress. They want you to be divided. And that is a sad thing. So investigate the way that you react to this and see where that takes you. When you can have a grounded understanding of what's actually going on and know that more people are killed with hammers and knives than AR-15s in this country every year, it will cause some reflection. We need pragmatic policy changes. We need to take a few steps back and a bunch of steps forward. But that doesn't happen when we're divided and we hate each other. And Lauren Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Chris Hayes are all part of the problem. Do not listen to these people when it comes to gun rights. Listen to people like Tim Kennedy. Okay, a Green Beret who has a ton of experience and deeply understands the issues. There are pragmatic policies that would be beneficial to us all, but they do not come from this type of rhetoric from both sides. Investigate your views. This is a hot button issue and do something with it. And now it's time for that part of the show where I give you something to think about. So people are a lot of frustration, a lot of anger flying around these days, <laughs> probably some to that last segment for sure, which I'm not sorry for, but I had to, it got me thinking the other day about why people are so adamant about their views, right? Like I had a little bit of a different circumstance than most people as far as how I view things like police violence and uh, systemic inequality and injustice. But those views aren't new to me. I've had those views, and I mean, they're relatively new. They're not like I've been, the whole life has been dedicated to them. But the past like five, six, seven years, I've been pretty involved in the way that I view these things. And I've I've thought them out a lot. And and to me, I get accused of not caring enough about certain issues. I get accused of um, being transphobic or, or being an oppressor. When I've been very outspoken about the need to address injustice um, for years and years. And it got to me thinking about this, and I, I'm curious what y'all's thoughts are on this. Is it because people didn't notice, and now they're noticing the ability, the, the, the abundance, excuse me, the abundance of injustice in this country... That it kind of flew under their radar a bit. And now they're compensating for the fact that they missed what was going on. They missed the government overreach. They missed the impacts of, of racist policies back in the day and how they're still impacting our world now. They didn't understand mass incarceration. They didn't see how the wealthiest can afford tax loopholes and pay nothing in taxes. It's like they realize it all and their whole worldview comes crumbling down. And then they have to lash out at people around them that don't see it the same way that they did. Although there are some of us who have been doing this for years, who have been thinking about this for years, who did have that kind of same response when they realized and they snapped out of it and they saw what was going on. But now, years later, they've become a little bit more grounded, a little bit more subdued. And aren't bought into the hype. They're not surprised by the fuckery. And see the value in incremental change. And speaking up. And being pragmatic. And being intellectually honest. I feel like people like that. like We spoke about Glenn Greenwald earlier in the show. People (laughs) like that who have been in this game for a while. And he's been in it for a lot longer than I have. I think since he was about 17 years old. And he's definitely in his late 40s but not early 50s now. Being attacked for not being aggressive enough when it comes to certain issues. I get attacked for not being aggressive enough on certain issues. When if you add the amount of time, the amount of thought, the amount of risk taken in speaking up for those issues, there were a lot of people who were doing it when it wasn't fucking cool. A lot of people. And those people are the same ones now who were speaking up for free speech. The real liberals, not the neoliberals. Those are the ones that are speaking up for free speech now and the ones that people on the left specifically are attempting to silence. Why is that? I think it's a deep underlying shame for missing it. For all these years and not noticing it until now and now instead of being a risk taker or being outspoken or standing up for something they're jumping on a bandwagon and that bandwagon is full of anger and hate and vitriol and wants to silence and suppress as opposed to having real discussions and intellectually honest disagreements. The kind of disagreements that are productive. <sighs> That's what I think. But either way, it's something to think about. Y'all, this has been a fun one. I'm glad we're moving to two shows a week. Gives me, uh, just puts a little fire under my ass. You guys are awesome. Make sure to check out the politically homeless community. Don't be mad at me about the gun thing. I was trying to make a point oh <laughs> uh, review that podcast on apple podcast share it with your friends share it on socials tag me love you guys keep your head on straight and we'll see you next time